The Futurist AI Summit podcast by Washington Post Live is presented by IBM and Intel. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining, I'm Christina Passariello, the Deputy Business Editor for Technology and Personal Finance. Um, We are joined on stage today by two amazing women who have really um, checked the power of technology, which is such an important role as we think about AI and the world that we're heading towards. So we have Frances Haugen, who is the co-founder of Beyond the Screen. Frances, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Happy to be here. And Meredith Whitaker, who is the president of Signal. Thank you so much, Meredith, for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. All right, so let's get going. Um, We are gonna tap into your wide-ranging perspectives about the lessons of the last decade uh, and how we take those lessons forward to understand where we're going with AI. Meredith, I'm gonna start with you. You have been critical of big tech's data practices of collecting personal data, and of course, Signal is encrypted and does not do that. Tell me how concerned we should be about how those data practices are spilling over into this new generation of AI. Yeah, well, we should be very concerned, Um, but I think we should expand the frame beyond data practices as a discrete element of a business model that could be changed or regulated Mm -hmm. to look at the fact that big tech relies on mass surveillance. And this was instantiated in the late 90s when the Clinton administration effectively gave the green light to private companies to commercialize network computation with no restrictions on privacy. So the business model that developed out of this, which Francis has spoken about at length, is this surveillance advertising business model that incentivizes the creation and collection of increasingly invasive data about us, our communities, our worlds, and is now supercharging that voracious appetite for data via this bigger is better paradigm of AI. So, you know, AI is a surveillance technology insofar as it requires this mass surveillance, these huge data sets, and insofar as its application by governments, institutions, and other actors is itself surveillance. It produces data about us. It infers things about us and our communities that in turn create more data, create more information, of course, in the hands of about five companies mm-hmm. who are the only actors in the world with the infrastructure and data that is required to create these systems. So yeah, we should be concerned, but the concern should go beyond data practices to be concerns about social control, about surveillance apparatuses, and about what can happen to those affordances when they're in the hands of people with malign intent. And and we heard earlier on stage today about how uh, the amount of data that's being used now is in the past four years has grown 1,000-fold. So we're in this moment with AI where there's greater and greater need for data. Francis, I wanted to ask you, you've said that both social media and AI platforms are driven by opaque technological systems. Tell us what you mean by that. So if we were to look at something like an iPhone, uh, you know, I've, I've done the search before for Apple whistleblower. You know, like, is like I actually kind of chafe at the title face, the, the Facebook whistleblower because there are so many Facebook whistleblowers, like people who have actually brought up more documents than me. You just don't know their names. Um, if you look at Apple, like there's very, very few whistleblowers. And I think that's because the incentives to lie are substantially less. 
right? Like if you look at the time between when a new Apple iPhone hits the market and when the first YouTube videos go live of someone taking that phone apart, it's like hours like really high quality videos where they're like, this, this, is, this is the chip they said it was in there. This, this lens, that's actually the lens that's in there. People run performance benchmarks on these phones. The incentive to lie is relatively low. Those are more transparent systems. That's what our economy was for the last 200 years. But we're moving into a world, especially as more and more of it is automated, more and more, more of it is run by AI systems, where the actual mechanics of the product you're buying operate on a data center. Like you don't get to interrogate it, especially if those experiences are personalized to you or, or, or to other people. It means that none of us get to see what a representative experience is. And I'll give you even one more little slice, like things like um, ChatGPT, you have a limited number of queries you can do per day, right? Even if you get a paid account, like my husband uses it to help with coding, and he literally has two accounts because he regularly goes through all of his credits on one. Hmm. Um, and so it's one of, he, that is a, if coding can be a drug, like it's like an intermittent reward cycle, you're like, oh, is it gonna work this time? Is it gonna work this time? Is it gonna work this time? AI plus coding, I, I lose him for six hours at a time. But, um, the, uh, uh, but, but it's one of these things where in the hands of researchers, you know, you, you can't afford to get a thousand paid accounts if you're an academic. Like if you only get a few queries a day on free accounts and they're looking for that kind of usage, we have no idea how these systems operate. And what we saw with social media is that if you can cut corners in the dark, people will cut corners in the dark because like Meredith said, it's a question of economics. Mm -hmm. If you have to report your economic balance sheet but not your social balance sheet, you can take from one to make the other look better. And so we had Chuck Schumer on stage earlier this morning. Senator Schumer was saying that you know the legislative approach is really what's going to help us in the U.S. Meredith, you have advised Lena Khan. Um, of course, Congress is holding AI hearings and forums, and we heard today that there's going to be another one next week. Um, but you also mentioned the Clinton administration sort of laying the groundwork for all of this yeah. data collection. So how optimistic are you that Congress and regulators will tackle these issues today competently, even though they have not passed any major legislation on the last big tech uh, topic they were focused on, which was social media? Well, they haven't passed a federal privacy bill, and yep. it's been 20-something years, yeah. right? So what, it, you know, like, I don't know where optimism would spring from, but it's pretty barren ground. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and I think the incentives right now are not aligned for the social good. I think we're looking at billions of dollars in lobbying being thrown by these big tech companies, a full-on media operations campaign that has been documented yeah. by tech industry adjacent folks to displace ethical concerns and concerns mm -hmm. about the social harms of these systems with you know, what I would call religious sci-fi fantasies yeah. <laughs> about the singularity and about sort of the super intelligence. Yeah. So you know, we are outgunned in terms of lobbying power and in terms of the ability to put our weight on the decision makers in Congress, but where my hope lies for regulation is not with a kind of, you know, Athena birthing from the head of a senator and saying, like, actually, you need to, you know, do the right thing, but with things like the Writers Guild of America, yeah. who have, you know, I think done the best job we've seen of regulating AI, you know, just non traditionally. They did the classic move, withholding their labor. And they got terms that are actually, you know, staunching the bleeding of the, you know, use by the studios and big tech 
to place AI within their labor process in ways that will degrade their labor, that will degrade artistic output, and that will actually, you know, I think have a, a real precedent-setting move in terms of, of stopping the real harms right now. So I would look to the Writers Guild of America, I would look to SAG, I would look to you know, drivers unions that are contesting the sort of automated precarity of AI systems like Uber and Lyft. I would look to sort of movements from below that are actually tackling the harms now and not simply sitting around and taking selfies with Elon Musk and calling it a regulatory agenda. I, I, I would... I think one of the things that's going to drive those kinds of changes is, uh, you know, people have talked at length where, you know, there is a skills escalator. You know, you come out of college, you come out of high school, and you have relatively low complexity jobs. And like, I had, uh, I had lunch with a friend a couple days ago, and she was, she'd been playing around with generative AI. And she's like, I am never going to hire a junior copywriter again. It's like amazing. And I, I looked at her and I was like, amazing for you. Right, like in a world where if you are a junior visual designer, you are a junior writer, like the jobs, a junior journalist, the jobs that allow you to then become a more sophisticated contributor, they're about to disappear. Mm -hmm. And if you have enough unemployed young people, you get actions. Like society gets destabilized if you have enough unemployed young people. So clearly, yes, there is going to be huge impact on labor. And we're starting to see that already, right? Um, just in these hiring decisions that people are making. Now, Francis, companies like OpenAI have asked the US government to regulate them, which recalls mm. the position mm -hmm. that Mark Zuckerberg was in with Facebook after, mm. after many uh, hearings. Um, do you think that the tech industry has learned the lesson of the last decade about being proactive about the risks of their technology? It's, it, it has, it's not even um, from back when Mark had to testify. Uh, people looked at Facebook's response to 41 state, states, I always get this wrong, state attorneys general suing Meta on Tuesday. They came back and said, we're very disappointed in the attorneys general because they didn't provide us with like a healthy framework. Instead, they did this adversarial thing. And it's like, you fund lobbyists like NetChoice who go in there and torpedo when people try to regulate things. Um, in terms of learning the lessons, I want to really reiterate on what Meredith said around economics drives action. If you have a business model where there is no transparency, there is no having to like, report the costs of like, the social side of the balance sheet, the incentive is to keep cutting corners. And, and what we've seen, what's actually really disturbed me, is like, OpenAI has been one of the more conscientious players as, as much as like we, it's still they're not doing enough. You know, Facebook came out and published their model. You know, they, published, they, they leaked the weights of it. You know, it's not a question of five companies in the world can do these models. Like we have AI today in the wild where you can take stuff that is open source and spend hundreds of dollars and make a bot that is going to be able to like help you run an information operation. Right? Like move fast and break things is immediately being reapplied today. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the business models, of course. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, we reported that the White House is expected to unveil its executive order on AI next mm -hmm. week. 
One of the things that we reported is that the order will require advanced AI models to undergo assessments um, hmm. before they can be used by federal workers. So baking in an economic incentive um, if you're going to contract with the federal government. What impact do you think that's going to have on how big yeah. tech is um, might develop their models? You know, I've seen estimates that say that the, the market size for generative AI in the next 10 years is going to be on the order of 10 to 12 trillion dollars like with T, like we're used to talking about billions, we're talking trillions. And, and the, those are modeled off of the idea that for every dollar of productivity you can give a company, they're willing to pay you 20 or 25 cents for it. Um, uh, right now, we have an opportunity through things like this, or like imagine if the Fortune 500 came out and said, you need to meet a certain level of transparency, a certain level of safety bars, if you want us to buy from you. Right? That would actually provide economic incentives throughout the creation chain. Because right now, you have startups that are getting funded. And you want to have the people who are guiding those startups saying, hey, we need to see proactively what your safety plan is. Because we need you to be able to have Fortune 500 companies. We need you to be able to have the federal government to be a client. So I think it's a great yeah. step forward. And, and Meredith, you, of course, uh, were were became notable in part because of, of your whistleblowing within Google around um, the ways that the technology was being used. Of course, you know, and, and how their business um, incentives sort of dominated over moral and ethical concerns. Now, in this era of generative AI, they talk about being bold and responsible. And of course, they have been a little bit on the back foot, uh, you know, a little bit beat to the market by both OpenAI and Microsoft. How do you see um, th their approach to uh, ethics and morals versus the business balance these days? Yeah, well, I did do labor organizing at Google, and that was one of the few things that actually checked some of these impulses. So I think you know, we can talk about business model, we can also talk about capitalism, right? The engines of these companies are driven by a need, a requirement to report revenue and growth increases every quarter forever. That's the definition of metastasis, and it is obviously not healthy for the social benefit. So I think, you know, we do need those structural checks. I think, you know, how is Google doing? Look, I don't, remember Web3? <laughs> right? Vaguely. Like, you know, this was a hype cycle. Everyone was predicting, you know, massive numbers. This is going to change the entire environment. And then, you know, no one's talking about it. Andreessen Horowitz has even moved off it. They're, you know, black holing their, you know, their optimistic manifestos. I think generative AI is very similar. I don't think AI in general is similar. I think they're going to continue to create these large scale models that involve data and compute. But generative AI is not actually that useful. What happened in January was that technology or sort of a, a framework for building models that had been developed in 2017 was sort of put online with an interface by Microsoft slash OpenAI who have to be understood as the same entity, right? And the ChatGPT interface kind of gave people a simulated experience of like, oh my God, I'm talking to kind of a human. It's spitting out nonsense, but it's spitting it out. And this feels kind of sentient, right? And on the backs of this advertisement, for their GPT API, which they sell through their Azure cloud services, they sort of generated an entire new hyped narrative around generative AI as this sort of future-facing technology that's going to change every industry. But what does it do, right? It, you know, it presents visual images that are often you know, stolen from artists or like far too close for comfort, and it presents plausible text.
text, right? It infers what's the sort of plausible response to a prompt based on, you know, mountains of data from the internet, the Reddits, the 4chans, you know, the Stormfront is in there, as Natasha's work has shown, you know, and, and kind of presents text that looks plausible but has no relationship to facts, has no relationship to reality, has no citations, right? So what is this useful for? It's not useful in most serious contexts. Yeah, you could re, you know, replace a junior copywriter, but you better have a senior copywriter who's checking that text because it's going to be janky. So I think we need to be like really clear about what are we actually responding to. We're responding to an advertisement, a very expensive advertisement, ChatGPT, that was put online as an interface that allowed us to have a sort of simulated experience with a yeah. bot that we're now sort of making all kinds of predictions on that I don't think are actually grounded in any understanding of the utility of these systems. And again, you know, Silicon Valley runs on VC hype. VCs require hype to get a return on investment because they need an IPO or an acquisition, and that's how you get rich. You don't get rich by the technology working. You get rich by people believing it works long enough that one of those two things gets you some money. So we're seeing another one of those. Is I, 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 I think that sentiment is dangerous. Like just come in and say like this is this is irrelevant. Like this is just a hype cycle because we need to remember companies have spent tens of billions of dollars a year, like Fortune 500 companies, tens of billions of dollars a year on teaching their own employees how to write basic emails. Like we take for granted the fact that most people struggle with communication. And you can, it's, I, I fully back up the idea that today you can ask basic factual questions to these AIs and they give very, um, ver very varying answers, right? Um, at the same time, like you can give them bullet points and say like, hey, I'm struggling to write a first draft of this report. Like it used to be, you'd have your junior, your junior, whoever's your junior person on your team, but like give a first stab at the report, then I'll edit it. Because it's faster to edit than write the first version. People are just putting in bullet points and they get a first version and they edit it. Um, and so I don't think we should come in and say like, the, the, like the, and remember, technology is exponential, right? Like if you sit there and say, this is a toy today, I think it is a toy today. But if you say it's a toy today, you know, it keeps getting better. They're getting better at doing things like structured reasoning. Like we shouldn't just like dismiss that this is not going to be yeah. a danger. I mean, I, just to clarify, I don't, hype doesn't mean it doesn't do some things. Yeah. Hype means that an entire ecology yeah. of sort of, you know, narrative bombast yeah. has been sort of predicated on something that, yeah, it can help you write an email. If that's a problem you want to solve with like 20 billion GPUs, you can do it. Right, but is that a world-changing problem to solve? And what is the actual sort of you know material basis for these what I would call bombastic claims? So it doesn't mean there isn't a you know GPT certainly does a thing, right? But let's like get back down to reality and the actual thing it does before we make all of these predictions based on that. Let's close with a question about misinformation, because, of course, mm -hmm. uh, this is something we've, we've touched on briefly here, uh, the drunk uncle problem, I'll say. Um, and, but these models need more data in order to not produce so much misinformation, is what the companies say. Meredith, what do you respond to that? Well, these models have no bearing. These models have no understanding of truth or reality. These are probabilistic systems that predict what is likely to be the next word in a sentence, not what is right, right? You have to bolt facts and truth and citations on post hoc. So it's, you know, this is not a question of, you know, data quantity. This is a question of how do you effectively turn, you know, sort of a statistical system 
you know, into an expert system, which was sort of, you know, the AI wave before this. AI is a marketing term that's been applied to a lot of different technical modalities. The wave before this was sort of expert systems where you sort of effectively create a map of the world and that, that becomes, you know, the decision tree that the AI follows. This is now sort of, you know, statistically predicting what is likely to happen. You're going to need to bolt on effectively. You're going to have to sort of recreate expert systems to get to that. So th I don't think... I think the data quantity issue is sort of a red herring that is sort of produced again or, or being being sort of asserted by the companies whose you know business model has always been collect all the data as much as we can more and more and more. Well, or you know surveillance. Can I give a, quick, a, a very a very brief answer? Yes. Okay. So there's a difference between randomized false truths, right? So this is like the hallucinations from general AI. Uh, from generative AI, there's a totally different thing, which is organized information operations. And the thing I am most scared about in the 2024 election is it used to be if you wanted to have lots of different pieces of misinformation, because when you have lots of different, just slightly different pieces of misinformation, it's harder to find the network. You had to pay a huge number of people to write all those different permutations. And we're going to see a thing now where you can turn on your model and say, here's my seed piece of misinformation, my narrative. Give me a, a thousand variants, and now I can go test them. I can see like which ones go most viral, and that's going to completely change how information operations work. And that is a, the, the singular most dangerous thing with misinformation because it's not going to be randomized. It's going to be in directions that are aligned with whatever the interests are of that information operation. I mean, and, I think the TLDR yeah. is they're good at producing nonsense, misinformation. Yeah. They do not produce truth or veracity. So, you know, again, what do these systems do and for whom? This is a wonderful place to end the conversation, thinking about the, the real impact that this technology can have on this democratic process we're going to have next year. Meredith and Francis, thank you both so much for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, don't go anywhere, folks. Um, our next guest will be out here in just a moment. Thank you so much. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. So there's been a lot of conversation, smart conversation this morning about rules and regulation and guardrails. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into all of that with Christina Montgomery, who is vice president and chief privacy and trust officer at IBM. Great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So first explain this job title, chief privacy and trust officer. What does that entail? So I'm responsible for IBM's global programs around privacy, um, and I'm also responsible for AI governance and data governance for IBM. So we've had a chief privacy officer for almost a quarter of a century now. We were the first company in our industry to have one because we recognized with the birth of e-commerce, personal information was becoming critical and needed to be protected. Um, and uh, we on the ethics side of things, announced principles of trust and transparency around AI five years ago now. Um, and their principles like AI should augment humans, not replace them. It should be explainable and fair and private and secure and all those things we're talking about today. Um, and importantly for us, uh, our clients' data belongs to them. So we had those principles, um, but we needed a way to hold ourselves accountable to them and to build them into practices across our company. Um, so that's what I was tasked with doing, essentially, building an AI ethics board that serves as our centralized decision-making organization around AI ethics. And then, as I said, building those principles into practices across our company and holding our company um, and every IBMer accountable to those principles. 
So we hear this phrase, ethics by design. Mm -hmm. What does it mean? Yeah, so ethics by design is sort of at the heart of the way we approach AI at IBM. Um, and if you think some in this room may be familiar with the concept of privacy by design, sort of thinking from the conception of the development or use of a product, um, how you can ensure that you are incorporating privacy principles into it, things like data minimization, um, you know, uh, deletion of data, those types of things, the ability to do that. So when we think about it from an ethics perspective, it's essentially the parallel. It's thinking and ensuring that you are taking ethical considerations into account from the conception of a technology project all the way through the life cycle. So we built a playbook around this internally in IBM with the help of hundreds of IBMers. Um, and it's robust in terms of it not only um, tells you, OK, if your project, what is the goal of your project, how to consider that, um, and then from the onset, what you might need to do in light of that. So you need to test for bias. And here, by the way, is a toolkit to do that. So it's the whole roadmap of how you think about and what considerations you need to have from an ethics perspective. When we think about ethics, I'm talking about responsible data use, responsible technology use, transparency, explainability, fairness, those types of things. Not only that you have to do it, but how to think it through. And then what technology, what tools you can use to help you accomplish that. So IBM has built this structure. Have most companies in the AI space? I mean, I can't speak for most, but I can say that we've been a leader in um, sharing as much as possible the practices that we have, uh, sharing the ethics by design playbook and the approach. Um, we have been one of the leaders in the sort of emergence of an AI governance profession. So a lot of people within the privacy space um, and in my role are being tasked with responsible AI as well um, because really of the programs we've built around managing personal information and managing data. Um, and organizations like, for example, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which has 80,000 members around the world, um, has now an AI governance center that is sort of taking these principles that we talked about and teaching people how do you think about AI governance and how do you manage it? And we are, I sit on their advisory board, we're contributing to the body of knowledge that will teach people how to do this. So we're hoping by sharing our practices, by being transparent, that more and more companies will take it into account. So there may be people in this room who are thinking of procuring AI yeah. for their organizations. What should they look for in terms of privacy and security? Yeah, so um, we've seen early on, and if you look at chatbots, for example, last year, some of the earliest uh, cases and concerns were by privacy regulators, right, saying, you're using personal information in the training of this model and the output of this model and the like. So privacy and security are real concerns when it comes to um, AI technology because of the ability, uh, what's used in the training and the output. So I think it's important when procuring this technology, um, any technology in the AI space, any technology in general, to um, understand the vendor that you're using. Uh, you see how easily trust can be lost. Um, and trust is so fundamentally important in, uh, to any company and to any company brand. 
So, uh, you know, from we have helped with things like in the procurement context, checklists, ask if your vendor is considering things like um, privacy and security or ethics by design in their practices. What are things, what are questions to ask? If it's an HR, for example, solution, are they testing it for bias? What are the practices? So I think it's important not just from a development perspective, but from a procurement perspective to understand the practices of the vendor that you're procuring technology from. So the EU is ahead of the US when it comes to AI regulation. Um, I'm wondering how important you think it is, given the fact that technology companies are global in many cases, that there be harmonization on these rules and regulations internationally. So interoperability is uh, something we have been striving to sort of get implemented around the globe as much as possible. I mean, it's important to us as a company that operates in more than 170 countries around the world. And I think it's important for a few reasons. And I'm not, I'm, in part because it will be easier to comply. That's helpful for technology companies, but that should be helpful for, um, you know, the easier it is to comply, the more likely companies are going to be complying. Um, you know, a company like IBM, we have practices in 170 countries, a uh, business in 170 countries. We also have people around the world that can help us to ensure that we're taking all those laws and rules and regulations into account. A lot of companies can't do that. And when you think about um, artificial intelligence, I mean, by its nature, this technology does not have a border. Uh, it, it is impacting everybody, and it's only fair that. Um, people around the world who the technology is being deployed, uh, you know, who are going to be subject to the technology are offered sort of the same benefits associated with that. So I think interoperability is really important, at least at the highest levels in terms of um, having a common set of values-based principles, having certain practices. So a great example um, of, of interoperability that we saw just recently is the United States and Singapore are doing a crosswalk, a mapping of US NIST AI risk management framework and Singapore's AI management framework called AI Verify. And in the end, those comparisons and those crosswalks are going to lead to um, the adoption of some of the best practices, because we'll take the best from both, right, and apply those. So I think those kinds of conversations make the solutions better for everybody. So even if there is some sort of international consensus on what the rules should be, there's still rogue actors who yep. aren't gonna pay any attention to those rules, right? There'll always be rogue actors, which is why we need um, as many guardrails in place as possible. Um, and it's also where these international conversations are so critically important, right? Because, um, you know, the, the more alignment there is around common values and common principles, the more likely guardrails will be adopted by companies, encouraged by governments, um, and will protect against, you know, harmful uses as much as possible. The White House is expected to issue its executive order on AI Monday, according to the Washington Post. Um, what are you going to be looking for? Well, we've been hoping from the onset that uh, the executive order will balance innovation with managing risks. Um, and uh, I'm hopeful and expect that that will, in fact, be the case. You know, the US government is a huge procurer 
of, a, of technology in general, and particularly AI. Um, and this is a real opportunity for the US government to lead in being emblematic in adopting trustworthy and responsible AI principles. So things like pointing to the use of the NIST uh, risk management framework in the procurement of AI systems and solutions, best practices like that, um, helping to uh, lead in research um, and to, uh, you know, particularly research in the trust and safety spaces um, in helping to uh, not only dictate, not just dictate, but not only sort of um, direct what those guardrails should be, but helping to research solutions around them. So, for example, Senator Schumer this morning talked about explainability. Um, and it's not, you know, there is a lot of research that needs to be done. Um, there's some best practices around transparency and data and the like, but uh, the more we understand how the models work, the better and the safer that the, the technology will be ultimately. So more research to be done there, more research to be done in watermarking. So I think encouraging that through uh, something like this executive order will be, will be very beneficial. Do we need a new federal agency to regulate AI? So I think every agency should be an AI agency. But um, should there be a standalone? I don't, uh, so, so personally, I, I don't believe so. I mean, look, AI is a pervasive technology. Every single one of us is going to have to learn how AI is going to touch the jobs we do today, the jobs we do tomorrow. And the other important part about AI is that the harms, and in IBM, you know, we've, we've been um, pretty clear from four years ago to today in terms of what we have been, what we think smart regulation looks like. And we've been calling for regulation. Unlike, you know, other technology companies, we've been calling for regulation of this technology for four years. Um, but we have been asking that the technology be, the regulation be focused on the use, not the technology itself. Because if you try to regulate the tech, your regulation is going to become very quickly outdated. So to that end, um, existing regulators understand how the risks of AI technology are playing out in their respective domains. You require that domain knowledge and that domain understanding. For example, you have to understand the department, you know, in the Department of Defense, they're the best able to understand the risks of using AI in defense-related uh, scenarios, same for transportation, same for employment and the like. Tech companies, including your own, have been involved in discussions with the federal government about AI regulation. What would you say to those people who say, wait a minute, we're putting the fox in charge of the hen house? Yeah. So. Um, We've been very clear that we don't think the rules of the road for AI should be written by tech companies alone. Uh, certainly, tech companies have an important role to play. In fact, it's our responsibility as the developers of this technology to help to educate um, policymakers, to educate consumers about how the technology works, what our practices are, and to be leaders in terms of responsibility and accountability. But we've been clear from the onset that we think these conversations have to be multi-stakeholder, multidisciplinary. In fact, you know, I sit on the steering committee for the Partnership on AI, which is a very multidisciplinary organization. 
uh, it includes civil society, academia, tech companies and the like. And just, I think it was yesterday or the day before, the Partnership on AI um, published its own recommendations for the safe deployment and development of foundation models. Um, and you know, the ACLU was at the table. I mean, civil society was at the table. So we think that's really important. Should there be even closer collaboration than there is now? Or do you think it's just about right? I mean, I, I think we're gonna see this as much collaboration as possible. Um, so I think a combination of things like um, the partnership on AI, things like what we see in the executive order, which hopefully will start you know, funding and initiating more and more research in the trust and safety spaces. We're heading in the right direction. We weren't having these conversations a year ago. We were asking for them and we were pushing for them, but we weren't seeing them take root, and I think we are now. Christina Montgomery, Vice President and Chief Privacy and Trust Officer at IBM. Thanks. Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back, everyone. Um, my name is Natasha Tiku. I'm a tech culture reporter with The Washington Post, and I'm joined here by Sneha Revenor, who is the founder and president of Encode Justice. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Natasha. I'm so, so, so honored to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so let's start with just talking a little bit about um, young people mm -hmm. and their adoption of this technology. What have you been seeing like among your peers at school with, uh, with generative AI and ChatGPT? Yeah, it's been astonishing. I mean, I've been working in this AI space for around three years, so obviously not nearly as long as some of the titans we see today, but still long enough to really notice and feel the impacts of this dramatic shift in how my generation is thinking about and using AI. I mean, all within the last year. People have gone from probably not thinking about it very much at all to AI now having a name and a face and really showing up in everyday conversations. I recall the first time my friend told me that she had used ChatGPT to write a text to a guy who had ghosted her. And <laughs> I, think, I think my reaction probably caught her off guard because I was like, oh my God, I have been waiting for this. You have no idea how much this excites me to hear these words even being uttered outside the bubble. And that was probably not the reaction she was expecting, <laughs> but nonetheless, it was so, so, so exciting and encouraging. And I mean, we've gone from probably last year, my friends and peers would have been like, oh, this is Sneha, she does this AI thing. I couldn't really tell you what it is. She just like skips class and goes to DC sometimes. And now people are actually walking up to me on campus and they're asking questions and they're expressing genuine concern about just how far reaching AI has become in our daily lives. And to me, that is so encouraging. I mean, my peers are wondering whether AI is surveilling us, whether AI is going to render their dream job obsolete, how social media algorithms are impacting their mental well-being whether they're encountering deep fakes, whether there could be an AI catastrophe, and obviously just how creepy Snapchat's My AI feature was earlier this year. I mean, that was, that was crazy. So I think that it's, it's awesome to see that people are beginning to pay attention, and I think that is the launching pad for meaningful public discourse. And how quickly have you seen um, like people's behaviors, like like uh, you know using ChatGPT to uh, text a guy who ghosted you? <laughs> how are people adapting to the everyday uses of it? Like, does it feel I guess suffused in your in your like daily life? Yeah, I think it definitely has been a slow shift, but I think it's it's for sure taking place. I think the first time that I really heard people talk about it was probably late last year um, in November and December when I think the initial hype and hysteria around ChatGPT was taking off. Um, and I think that at this point it's become 
a fixture of almost everyday conversation, which has been crazy to me. I know, for example, we've seen how a word like Google has become, you know, a dictionary word, and we've seen that become used as a verb. And I think now we're use, we're seeing ChatGPT enter everyday speech to almost a similar degree. And I think, yeah, it definitely has been something that has taken place over the last year and has been ramping up. But I think now it's it's really playing a critical role in our lives. And that's been astonishing. I mean, people are obviously using it, you know, in the ways that I described to, you know, write breakup texts and, you know, confront guys um, and, you know, <laughs> all sorts of things. But I think people are also using it um, for meaningful academic uses. People are, you know, using it to boost productivity. You know, people are using it to actually learn and to engage with new content. Um, there are positive uses. There are also risks, of course. We have encountered the issue of hallucinations, as they've called it, from ChatGPT and the risk of disinformation. Um, and of course, who knows the impact that generative AI could have on the workforce, whether, like I mentioned before, it could render some of our dream jobs entirely obsolete. So there's a whole host of challenges resulting from this. But I think people are finally becoming a bit cognizant of it. And can you talk to us a little bit more about Encode Justice, why you founded it, and how, um, how the organization has transformed over the past few years? Yeah, of course. I mean, things have obviously just taken off in the AI world as a whole over the last couple of years. But in, actually, when I was in high school, I came across an investigation conducted by ProPublica that uncovered pretty staggering rates of racial bias in an algorithm that was being used to determine whether or not a defendant should be released or detained before their trial. And you know that the machine bias expose is now you know treated as a seminal expose, kind of exposing algorithmic bias, and a lot of people view that as an entry point into the space. And actually, a couple of years after that, in 2020, I came across a ballot measure in my home state of California that sought to enshrine the use of very similar software statewide in place of the already flawed system of cash bail. And analysts actually thought that the measure was almost guaranteed to pass because it was backed by the political establishment in California and the billionaire developers of courtroom algorithms. And that's how I knew that I wanted to get involved. And so I rallied my peers. And together, we hosted town halls, created informational content, uh, called voters, and really tried to get the word out about the fact that these algorithms could actually be dangerous. Um, and I think that we actually were able to make a big splash and ended up defeating the measure by around a 13% margin. And that was actually just the first initiative. And at that point, we became this larger organization, Encode Justice. And now we're a global movement of around 900 high school and college students working to imagine a human-centered AI future. And I think that, like I mentioned before, a lot of that interest has been a product of the changing times. There's been a lot more interest in AI over the last year. But nonetheless, it's been so, so, so heartening, I think, to see um, how many more young people are beginning to pay attention and want to get involved. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about like, um, you know, well, first of all, Sneha and I met, I don't know, like maybe six months ago and the amount that she has accomplished in the past six months, like <laughs> if you didn't know her before, you will see her again and again. Um, and, you know, when, when you and I talked, you guys were still really focused on um, you know, facial recognition and a lot of these mm -hmm. um, inequalities that you know, members of Encode Justice had experienced at their own school. Mm -hmm. And now the conversation has been dominated by generative AI. Um, how are you navigating those two competing um, you know, policy goals that you're very interested in? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that there, you know, as you mentioned, has really been a dramatic shift over the last year, and that has led to a shift in my outlook as well. Um, I think that 
what, what, what stands out to me is that we're seeing a lot of infighting right now in the AI community in terms of where exactly energy and resources should be allocated. You know, we have people who want to focus solely on confronting short-term immediate risks, and that's obviously a critical, that's critical work because we're seeing algorithmic bias, we're seeing disinformation, we are seeing discrimination, surveillance, all of these challenges that we're face-to-face -face with already. And then we're seeing people who would rather focus on catastrophic um, risks and, you know, potential uh, threats posed by AI. AI that maybe we haven't actually seen yet or that haven't been fully realized yet. And the issue is that people are viewing these two priorities as competing. People have this zero-sum view of AI governance that I frankly don't think needs to exist because in reality, we can and should act to both confront the harms that we're already face-to-face -face with today and to anticipate the threats of tomorrow that we may not see yet, but that could be possibly devastating. And actually, it's the summit is fantastically timed, um, or maybe our, our statement was fantastically timed because we released a statement actually just yesterday with the Future of Life Institute, which obviously is a nonprofit focusing almost exclusively on the catastrophic potential of AI. And we called for the policy solution of creating an AI licensing regime and pretty vocally rejected this false choice between immediate threats and future harms. And so I think that it's really, really important now more than ever since we have lawmakers looking to experts as kind of a North Star to guide um, you know, policy discussions around AI. We're seeing, for example, Majority Leader Schumer, who was just speaking here earlier today, convening the set of expert insight forums to gather input and, and to you know, guide the path forward. You know, now more than ever, they're looking to experts in search of coherent messaging. And I think that my fear right now is that if we just evolve into infighting, if we just evolve into factions, then none of us are going to get what we want at all. And that's going to result in a scenario where we have to pay the steep cost of inaction and we're both unable to confront existing harms and we could you know, be on the brink of even more catastrophic ones. And so I think that you know, my call to action right now, and I think this applies both to lawmakers and to those in the AI communities to really end that infighting. And I think that that's a perspective that we've adopted as well in terms of we, we see ourselves as being capable of, of focusing on, on both sets of priorities. And could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, just the importance of young people having a voice in this legislation? I mean, we're seeing, um, you know, now recent like efforts to talk about mm -hmm. kids and social media. It's been around for 15, Absolutely. almost 20 years. Um, can you talk a little bit about, yeah, just how strongly um, your members feel about this and, and what they want to, like the message to lawmakers, I guess? Yeah, I mean, it is so, so important, Natasha. I mean, there is no generation before ours that truly understand what it's, what it's like to grow up in a world where the information that we're exposed to, the perspectives that we're consuming, to an extent, even our self-concept is almost algorithmically curated because of the extent to which we've engaged with social media platforms. It truly has impacted you know, every aspect of our existence and we've grown up in that reality as opposed to generations before us that you know, had that introduced them at a much later point in their lives. And so because of that, I think we have this unique perspective and we have this credential of lived experience that I think is so, so, so valuable in these conversations about AI regulation. And so even though a lot of us are you know, sometimes off put by the amount of technical jargon complexity relating to AI. You know, in, in the past, we tended to view AI as this abstract phenomenon that was just beyond comprehension, something dawning upon us in the distant future, but, you know, not 
you know, actually present in the here and now. Um, I think it's really important that we shed that view and that we get involved in these conversations because we need meaningful democratic control of AI to really steer it in the right direction. We need broad public participation and it's my generation of digital natives that needs to really take up the mantle and join those conversations and join those efforts. And so I think that uh, lawmakers should be willing to hear from us, again, given that lived experience that we have. But also my generation, my peers should be willing to, I think, look past sometimes, I think, how intimidating these conversations can be and realize that they are just as entitled to a place in the conversation as any academic or any PhD or any you know congressional veteran. Right. Um, we just have time for one last question. And I'd love to hear about, you know, growing an organization to 900 people <laughs> is, is a phenomenal achievement. And Thank could you. you talk a little bit about like what, um, as you've seen more young people get engaged, what has been the catalyst for their engagement, for getting over the, the hump of like the technical jargon and, you know, maybe feeling like you don't have a voice, uh, you're too young to be part of a policy conversation? What, what, how are you seeing people come to the organization? Yeah, I think that there, there are a couple of ways in which we've been able to make that take place. I think the first one is, again, really highlighting that AI is already influencing daily life and that it's not this distant phenomenon that people can't even begin to conceive of. I mean, I always bring up this example and I use this to illustrate just how impactful AI is. But, you know, let's say that you're applying for a job. There could be an algorithm that is determining what jobs you are you know, even shown in the first place and, you know, which jobs you're even applying to. And there could also be an algorithm that once you actually apply is reviewing your resume. And you know, we obviously have seen some instances of algorithmic bias and systems that have been deployed by, by leading companies in making those decisions. At the same time, let's say that you are standing trial. There could be an algorithm that is evaluating you and your criminal risk that you are posing as a defendant. Let's say you're moving around in a public space. There are facial recognition cameras that could be monitoring your movements and that could be used to track down your identity. Um, it really is impacting us on every level and it's to an extent where it's now inescapable. And of course, as we're also grappling with these conversations around larger scale catastrophic risk, I mean, really none of us are able to be exempt from the harms of AI. It's, it's really going to deeply impact what our shared future could, could look like. And so I think that because we've been able to make that claim, because we've, I think, also been able to use these conversations around generative AI as an entry point to bring more and more folks into the fold, I think that for the first time, young people are beginning to see this as an issue that is both proximate to their lived reality and also more and more accessible because we are trying to make those connections crystal clear between AI that we're hearing about um, in an abstract sense and AI that's actually being used in the real world. So I think that's been really, really valuable. Um, and also, of course, I think that there are so many ways to get involved. I mean, we have youth who have backgrounds in computer science and who you know, are learning learning coding and you know have that technical credential and you know they they come at this issue with that perspective because they want to for example head into the tech force and you know become developers themselves who are a lot more socially conscious and who are you know thinking a lot more about how to build responsible technology and then we also have youth who have backgrounds in advocacy and who have worked on adjacent issues or who have you know worked in climate activism or have worked in gun violence prevention or similar issues where we've seen a lot of youth engagement and now they're looking at this and they're like this could be 
the next great challenge of our time. And this could be the next great challenge that young people are, are really being called on to take part in. And so I think that because it's an issue where people from so many different backgrounds and vantage points can really get involved, um, whether that's, you know, again, people who have a background in computer science or people who have a background in policy and advocacy or people who are creatively minded and want to help us, you know, reshape public narratives around AI, there's really a, a place for everyone to get involved and for everyone to, to apply their unique skills. And I think that's really what's brought so many youth into the conversation. So yes, very, very encouraging stuff. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sneha. Thank you so much. Um, yeah. Stay tuned. Our next guest will be out here shortly. Thank you. Every nation is racing to use AI to build a future that, that is imbued with their own values. And I think we can all agree that we do not want to live in a future that is defined by technology shaped by authoritarian regimes. And that's why the president is very clear that American leadership in the world today requires American leadership in artificial intelligence. Well, welcome back. I'm Kat Zakreski, national tech policy reporter here at The Post. And my guest today is Arthi Prabhakar, the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy at the White House. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Kat. Well, I want to dig right in because we had some news yesterday. My colleagues and I reported that the White House is preparing to release its long-awaited AI executive order on Monday, and that this will be one of the administration's most significant efforts to address AI safety and competition. What does the White House hope to accomplish with this executive order? Well, let's step back and talk about why we're focused on AI at the White House. Um, the president has been clear from the beginning that this is one of the most consequential technologies of our times. You've heard President Biden talk about the fact that we're at an inflection point in history. And he sees AI as part of that. And, and uh, just as that clip was showing, if the decisions we make about AI right now are going to shape the future for many, many decades ahead. That's why it's a major focus. And that's why the objective has been clear from the beginning for all of our work. And that objective is to wrestle with the risks, to manage and mitigate the risks so that we can seize the great opportunities that AI provides. And that's what's behind all the work that we're doing in the White House. And so we've seen a flurry of activity from the White House on AI, uh, certainly the pledges from companies. And I wanted to ask you, we've seen this voluntary effort, but is that enough? What do we need in terms of executive action at this stage? Yeah, it's, of course, it's not enough. And I, again, look, let's, let's start by understanding this is a very powerful technology. It's very broad. It's moving really rapidly. And in a moment like this, uh, everyone needs to step up 
and, and meet their responsibilities and their obligations. Part of the work that we did started in May when we invited four CEOs of leading AI companies to come to the White House. The vice president had an extended meeting with them. The president dropped by for a brief chat as well. And you know, the focus of that meeting, the vice president said it about as clearly as you can possibly say it. She said to them, you have not just a legal but a moral responsibility to make sure that your products are safe before they go out in the world. And that May meeting was the beginning of a series of activities that led to now a total of 15 companies signing up with voluntary commitments. Uh, that are things like agreeing that they're going to test their products um, and subject them to independent red teaming uh, at, before they release them out into the world. They've signed up to help work on watermarking and the technologies that you need to make sure that you, people can distinguish whether content that they're looking at is generated by AI. And these are important steps. They don't fully solve the problem, but th that's companies stepping up to their responsibilities. We're continuing to work with Congress on a bipartisan basis, as you heard from the majority leader earlier today. We're working with our international allies and partners. But while we're doing all of that, we also know the executive branch needs to step up to our responsibilities. And some of that has started with companies, uh, with, with different agencies and departments doing, just in the course of their work, they're making some important strides. There have been a whole series of announcements about that. And then starting a few months ago, uh, the, the White House said, and most recently the, pre the president said that he would be signing an executive order. Uh, he's, and that, you know, he said he, he's committed publicly to signing it this fall. Uh, and that is, the whole point of that is to take a broad look across government and really figure out all, uh, what are all the actions that we can take to meet this AI moment, to get AI right, under existing law. And that's the kind of work that's underway today. And on that point, you know, one of the areas that I know is top of concern for you and the White House is AI talent. What do you view yeah. as some of the biggest barriers to AI talent coming to the United States today? And what steps can the White House take to address yeah. that? Yeah, I, I think I, this is layers and layers. So number one, if we're going to do what we need to do as a country to get AI right, we need kids in school getting the STEM backgrounds that they need to be able to participate in the AI revolution. It's going to be everything from creating new generations of AI to using the technology in intelligent and really responsible ways. So we need our own kids stepping up. We need to make sure the door is open for all the talent that wants to come to America from around the world. And that's to get it in the country. And then the other thing, of course, that we think a lot about is how do we get the talent that we need in public service? And you know, a decade ago, I was uh, the director at DARPA. And there I was in the Defense Department and uh, trying to hire the smartest people I could get a hold of to come in and run amazing programs there. And it's never easy inside of government because most of these high-tech jobs in particular can't be caught. You know, we can't compete on directly head-to-head -head on salary. At DARPA, I was often trying to recruit people who, were had, who had job offers for substantially more than I could, I could pay them. But I got great people. And the reason was the call to public service and the chance to do something big that really mattered for the country and for the world. And so that will, you'll see us focusing on uh, pushing for that kind of great talent to come into the government uh, as well. And in addition to that, there's also been a lot of concern about immigration barriers to 
attracting the best AI talent. What steps can the Biden administration take to address those concerns? Yeah, I mean, I, this is an ongoing issue, and, and um, uh, it, it's been true in for high-tech workers in general, and now this AI moment comes on top of that. And, you know, maybe just to put it in a personal context, I'm the child of immigrants who came here in the, in the early 60s from India, and we have seen wave after wave of people coming from around the world who have helped build um, everything that this country is able to do. And I think we just need to recognize that a, a, something that's good for the world but makes it harder for us is that people have a lot more opportunity around the world today. And that, that really says we have to step up our game to make sure that, that we're, not, we're not just sort of like leaning back and say, sure, show up if you want to. We need to be really clear that we welcome people and make it easier for them to get here. And in addition to the concerns about talent and keeping America competitive, there's also worries about the safety of some of these AI systems. And um, from our reporting, I understand that NIST will be taking a leading role in red teaming um, AI models used by the federal government. Why is NIST the right agency to take on this work? Yeah, so let's talk, let's talk about NIST first, uh, and then I want to put that, the work of uh, safety in a bigger context. NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. It's another organization that I once got to run. That was way back in the Clinton administration when my hair was still black. But their mission, <laughs> their mission is unchanged over nearly, over 100 years now, which is to provide the measurement standards uh, the, the, the technical foundation, the infrastructure that we need for everything across our economy. And what that means in information technology and in areas like AI is standards, practices, uh, test beds, standard methodologies. They provide a technical foundation um, and benchmarks, but they work very closely with the private activities that set, that set standards as the developers and companies and universities come together. So that's happened across you know, every industry you could think of in our economy, and they are starting now to build out their capacity to do that for the things that, that, are, that are building on AI. And that's work that they uh, are stepping up to. They put out a risk management framework in the last many months that's one important, that's just table stakes to be serious about AI, and there's much more work uh, to do ahead. And so then the question is, well, what is it we're testing and trying to figure out what AI is good for? And I think I really want to come back to the breadth of this technology. So, you know, step back and think about this for a minute. What AI is, we've all seen the generative AI, the chatbots, the image generators. That's one part of this AI revolution that we're in. What AI is, this generation is about computing capabilities that people train on data. And then once they've trained it on data, they use it to make statistical estimates of all sorts. That's how your chatbot works. It's how, you know, it's what's behind self-driving cars. It's every interaction you have in the online environment, every ad that gets served up to you. So that's what's going on. And if you think about it, we're, you know, we created this information age, the number of different kinds of data to train AI systems on. It seems like it's boundless. It's, it's every click you do on, online. It's sensor data, scientific data, administrative data, financial data, it's language, it's images, it's video. So what that means is that this is an extremely, an extraordinarily broad technology, and every one of its applications has bright sides and dark sides, and every one of its applications, it, you, have to, you have to peel back the layers and figure out 
Is this technology safe? Is it, is it going to come off the rails? Is it trustworthy? Is it going to do the things that I really need it to do and stay within guardrails? And is it effective? Is it actually going to be accurate? Is it going to give me you know, the, the results that I really need to do my, my work? That's the work that has to be done. And um, it, it, you know, it's easy to say we need, we need to know that AI is safe and trustworthy and effective before we use it. All of our ambitions for getting this right are founded on the idea that we're going to know before we use it. And yet we're just barely starting to have the tools and methods to be able to do that. It, it, the way I think of it is it's sort of like uh, it's sort of like medicine before we had clinical trials. You know, I could sell you any potion I liked, and I don't know, it could be good for you, it could be, it could be a disaster. And, and c clinical trials are not perfect, but they allowed us to reap the benefit of pharmaceuticals. And that's where we need to get to with the tools and methods for safe and trustworthy and effective AI. NIST is going to have a huge role to play along with the industry and the research community. And on that point about tools and methods and NIST's role, does the agency currently have the personnel and funding that it needs to be able to take on some of the world's most powerful AI models? Yeah, this, this is a question for everything that we and every other, you know, every company is asking that question, universities are asking that question, and across government we're asking that question. And I think the answer is we're, we're all going to be building. And I know from my experience at NIST that, first of all, they start with a cadre of really deep, smart, technical people. And one of their great gifts is that NIST has a, you know, a long tradition of over 100 years of working very closely outside of its own walls. It's not you know, just looking inside, inside their own four walls. That means working with companies across industries and working with the academic community. And so that's how they will start. But, but they and many others are going to be doing a lot of work to build the capacity that we need. And on that point of capacity, Senator Schumer was here earlier today, yeah. and he talked about how there are limits to what can be done by executive action yeah. and how there's a need for congressional activity here as well. What do you think Congress's priorities should be as they try to grapple with the threat of artificial intelligence? Yeah. We've had a great conversation on a bipartisan basis with Congress. And of course, the majority leader is completely correct. There's, we are going to make really significant progress with the work that we're doing from the executive branch. No question about that. And no question that much more will be needed. And um, I, I've really, um, I've just had such a good set of discussions with people on Capitol Hill uh, over the course of these months, basically since you know early this calendar year when, when all of a sudden everyone was saying chatbots, it really, it really sparked the right kinds of conversations. And just as an example, uh, I got to participate in the majority leader's uh, session that he hosted on national security, part of his learning series. And that was, that was a classified discussion, um, you know, no mics, no, no cameras, um, and over half the Senate in a room really focused on what are the hard issues here and the quality of the questions and the quality of the thinking, I think, um, I, I felt really good about. Uh, but again, the breadth of the technology, the, the, the number of tasks to, to manage the risks, the number of tasks to figure out how to use it, the market's going to find all kinds of great ways to use it for all kinds of purposes. But for, in government, we need to be grabbing this amazingly powerful technology and finding really responsible ways to use it to do the country's work. 
We talked, of course, about the military and the intelligence community's um, use of it. My colleagues at that uh, session talked about that. But there's so much more, because if you think about every single way that the government interacts with citizens to provide services, um, those are places where AI is going to make us, it, the potential to make that work far better is, is there. If you think about vitally important services like weather forecasting and predicting where extreme weather is going to happen as climate continues to change, that is something that is very, it's breathtakingly hard it's, and we're not able to do it with enough fidelity to really inform personal decisions that, that are so essential. That's a, that's a problem that AI is going to help us uh, fundamentally change. And if you think about the therapies that we need, the way we want to address public health to change health outcomes, I could give you an endless list of the things that we need AI for. So there's a lot of work to do, uh, sorting out those priorities and then figuring out how to resource government to be able to step up. I think uh, that's, those are the conversations that I hear when I talk to people on Capitol Hill. And I think it's, there's a lot of work to be done uh, and I'm really glad to see the level of engagement and interest. And on that point, Director Prabhakar, I wanted to ask you about the threat from China. Um, certainly, um, there's been a lot of attention on this. And I was curious, do you think we are currently in a digital Cold War with China? Mm, that's a great question. Well, look, the, the, we live in a time in which geopolitical tensions with China uh, have ratcheted up. And, and the China that, that, uh, that the world sees today is not the China of 10 or 15 years ago uh, due to a series of actions that they've taken. And I think we just have to be very realistic that th there will always be global problems like climate change that we, we must work with China on. And at the same, same time, we are competing uh, economically uh, and we are, work, we are working very hard to deter and uh, make sure that we can defeat military action, which we hope never, it never comes to pass. So that, that is the reality that we're in. And I think for AI, it really comes back to the fact that this powerful broad technology is everyone around the world is grabbing it to use it to build the future that they think expresses their values, right? I mean, that, who wouldn't be doing that? It's such a powerful capability. And that's going to look different in authoritarian regimes. And we have so many disagreements in this country about so many things. The one thing everyone agrees on is we do not want to live in that future that is shaped by technologies that have been driven by authoritarian regimes. And I think that, that to me, is the fundamental reason that American leadership, if we are going to lead in the world as we must, we must lead in AI. That's part of this moment. That's really what underpins everything that we're doing. And that means we have to get it right for the American people and we have to continue to work with our allies and partners because we want to get it right for the world. On that point about America leading on AI, China already has rules for generative AI systems. The European Union is getting close to legislation governing AI. Next week, the UK is hosting its major AI summit. Yeah. Are we falling behind these other countries? Yeah, I don't think we're falling behind. And in fact, I think we are working closely with our like-minded allies. Uh, the, the vice president just announced that she's 
participating in that AI summit in the UK as an example. There are a host of other dialogues that are going on, including a G7 dialogue, uh, work that Secretary Raimondo is doing um, with the uh, US-EU uh, Trade and Technology Council. So all of those conversations are going on. And I think the challenge that we are all facing together is with this very fast moving, very broad technology, how do we how do we get this right? How do we put, how do we shape the way regulations are enacted and enforced? How do we build the capacity to test and to know what these capabilities, what these AI technologies are actually doing? How do we seize it to use it for all of the benefits that can come? And how do you do that? You're riding this, this bucking bronco with this technology. Um, and, and I think that's the challenge. And I think the course that we are on um, the president was clear from the beginning, starting early this year, that we were going to move with urgency to get it right. And, and if you look at the series of actions that we've taken, working with the companies on voluntary commitments, the actions that, that a lot of our, comp our agencies and departments have already mentioned, the EO that the president has said he's going to sign this fall, and then in parallel of that, we also have had announced previously that the Office of Management and Budget is putting out guidance for how the government uses AI. And that is a very big deal, because getting that right is a place, a tremendous opportunity for leadership. So when you look at that slate, followed by legislation, we hope close behind, um, I, think we are, I think we are really in a very strong position. Do you have an update on when we can expect that guidance from OMB on how the government uses technology? That's been working um, in parallel with the EO, and I expect, I expect that that too will be soon. That'll be good. Got it. And I wanted to ask you, because you brought up the UK AI summit, and we were just talking about the tensions of both competing with China and how there are areas where the US needs to work with China, like yeah. on climate. What do you agree with the UK's decision to invite China to their AI summit next week? I, I thought it was a, a great process that they went through uh, to figure out how to convene the right people at the right table. And look, absolutely, we always want to make sure that there's good dialogue going on with every part of the world. And so I thought that was a, that was a, a terrific idea. And I think that we'll, we'll all see how those conversations play out. And on that point of the AI summit, the UK has signaled that they're going to focus heavily on so-called existential threats from yeah. artificial intelligence. Do you think that that is the right place to focus at this one-time gathering of global leaders and companies? Well, I think they've been very clear that they've chosen that out of a whole plethora of issues that are important for AI. But I think we should talk about this because Look, I mean, everyone who's involved with AI, in, if you are in a company, if, you are in a, if you're an academic researcher, if you are part of a civil society organization, people tend to come at it from one particular perspective. And that's actually the richness of this technology. But what that means is that it sometimes sounds like a cacophony of people saying, no, this is, you know, the issue is... Uh, bioweapons, or over here someone saying, no, the issue is this kind of bias that's embedded in algorithms, and someone else is saying, no, it's our information environment is getting trashed by misinformation. So, and other people are concerned about jobs. Every one of those concerns is real. Um, some are going to manifest early, some are going to manifest later, some of them can lead to abrupt and massive crises and on a short time frame. Others are going to play out over months or even years, but can also be equally devastating. 
And I think it's so important that people focus on the things that they are passionate about. But for the work that we're doing from the White House, we are the United States of America. We don't just work on one problem at a time. If we're going to get AI right for our country and for the world, we have to keep all of those risks and challenges in frame. And that is exactly what we have done from the beginning. And you'll see that continue in our work. But obviously, as much as you can keep all of those in frame, you have to set priorities, too. I mean, do you think that there has been too much focus on some of these existential risks? Is it distracting at all from the problems already with artificial intelligence? I really just don't see it as a competition. Um, The things that you need to do to deal with bias and and algorithms for uh, mortgage uh, lending decisions there are a set of things to do, and there are people who have responsibilities in that area. Often there are laws and regulations that are already on the books, and, and get you know figuring out how to step up to a moment where AI could be exacerbating those risks or making it harder to find those instances of bias. That you know that's something you go do over here. Bio risks are real, and by the way, they were real even before this generation of AI came along simply because of the the advances in biological technologies. And figuring out what to do about that requires taking a systems view of that problem and understanding the biological tools as well as the AI tools and then figuring out how you minimize our risk and our exposure. So I, I think they, I find when you really look at what the specific problems are, the levers that are available and and the ways to proceed are really quite different and they all need to be addressed because you know that's the ai simply won't work if we don't manage all of it and we're capable of doing that and so looking at those problems i wanted to ask you what keeps you up at night as someone who <laughs> has been working on this technology for years what are you most concerned about Uh, I do lie awake at nights sometimes thinking about it because I think um, probably the biggest reason I worry is because of not, not, you know, we keep talking about the technology, right? This is really about human beings. It's human beings that build these systems. It's human beings that decide what to train them on. Uh, it's human beings that decide what to let them connect to in the rest of the world or where they, where, what kind of autonomous functions they might have. It's human beings that choose how to use AI systems. And if you think the machines are complex and opaque and hard to understand, think about the human beings for a minute. And our, the creativity and uh, the ability for humans to do amazing things, shocking things, Terrific things and horrible things. That's what keeps me up at night. But I'll tell you, I, I do. So it does. It does. It is on my mind. But I wake up optimistic because I think we are going to make such significant progress uh, with this very focused work that we're doing. Um, and you know, the president's just been clear: we have to get this right. And what you'll see as we do the actions that have already taken place, the EO, the OMB. Uh, guidance, all of which is to come. With all of that in place, I think you will really see a broad, cohesive, comprehensive approach um, to getting AI right. And uh, that's a good reason. That's a good feeling in the morning when I wake up. So, Well, Director, we're just about out of time, so I think we'll have to leave it there on that happy note. Thank you so much for Thank joining you, us. Thank you, Kat. Today at really Live. appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.